In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, this is a long sermon, so I erased the introduction I had and I replaced it with this sentence. (laughs) All right, uh, on to the text. Uh, In the middle of the gospel lesson, Jesus says these words. He says, when the unclean spirit, that is a demon, goes out of a man. Well, what is he talking about? He is talking about what happens when someone becomes a Christian. When you become a Christian, the unclean spirits that were in you since birth were driven out by the word of God. This is what happens in baptism. It's a kind of exorcism. If you've paid attention during the baptism services, we've had a a few this past year. uh, There's something that I say to the one being baptized that this has been part of the historic liturgy. Uh, I make the sign of the cross on the one being baptized, that child. And then I say these words, depart unclean spirit make room for the Holy Spirit. In other words, there's room in this little heart for either thousands of unclean spirits or for the one and only Holy Spirit. Either the Lord, the Holy Spirit himself dwells in you or unclean spirits dwell in you. But both cannot be there. And that is what baptism does. It, it is the Lord who comes in and kicks out whatever unclean spirits possess their heart and soul. And the Holy Spirit then replaces them residing and dwelling and abiding with you. That is what 1 Corinthians chapter 3.16 says. It says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And then Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Finally, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. So, This describes the state of a person who has been converted, the state of someone who has been cleansed of all of this impurity, who now has the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus goes on to say that the evil spirit passes through waterless places seeking rest. What does that mean? Well, it means that evil spirits don't like being expelled. It means they want to make our flesh, our bodies, their home. And when the spirits were expelled from us, uh, away from our bodies, for them, it's like wandering through a waterless place, a hot, dry, desert-like region. In other words, they're uncomfortable, and they'd much rather be back in, in the place that they came from, which is in your flesh. And Jesus then continues saying that after they've wandered around looking for a place to live, he says, and finding none, the spirit says, I will return to my house from which I came. The house, the home here is the body. It is you. And then Jesus says, and when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. What does that mean? Luke says that the house, the heart is swept and put in order. But Matthew has the same text. He has the same account. And he adds one little detail that explains everything. He says, when it comes back, it finds the house empty. Swept and put in, good, in, in order. That is unoccupied. 
So, and you see how this goes together. When you put your home up for sale because you no longer live there, that's finally when your house is clean, right? You sweep it, you finally clean it in, in a way and it won't get dirty again because it's empty because you don't live there anymore. Nobody lives there anymore. Nobody can make a mess. All right, so that is what that is referring to and it is referring, uh, and, and what is that referring to? It is referring to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who was once dwelling in you now is no longer there. The heart that held the Holy Spirit now is empty, like a vacant house. So, you see what Jesus is talking about. He is talking about a very specific situation that happens all too often, sadly. And the specific situation is this, that someone is baptized, taught the faith, has the Holy Spirit dwelling in their hearts, and then later in life, rejects him, kicks him out. They evict him from their heart through impenitence and unbelief. Simply put, Jesus is talking about the condition of people who once believed and now have fallen away. And the main point that Jesus is getting at is here at the end. This is a stern warning. This is a frightening thing. These are, uh, listen to what he says. He says, he says that when that evil spirit finds the house empty, swept, and in order, then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And then Jesus ends with these haunting words. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And the point is this. Christians who believe for a time and then fall away become worse people than they ever were to begin with. Now, even if you didn't know that this is what Jesus was talking about or teaching, you do know that this is true. In fact, you have seen with your own eyes what he's talking about. And that is the point. Some of the worst kind of people you may meet in this life are those who were once Christians but have now fallen away. Consider, consider this. <clears throat> About 50% of all marriages end in divorce. But married couples who were once in church and no longer go are 20% more likely to get divorced than the average person. And that puts lapsed Christians at a 70% chance of divorcing. It means they have a higher rate of divorce than outright heathens, than those who never believed. The homes with the most domestic physical abuse, the most violent husbands and fathers, are those who once went to church, but no longer go. The vast majority of those now in the LGBTQ were once Christians who grew up in the church, but have since fallen away and given themselves over to debased minds and perverted acts. Men who were once Christians but no longer go to church view pornography 500% more than everyone else. And those who do this are more likely to fall away than any other Christian. Around half a million women in the States who get abortions are those who used to go to church and be entirely against it at one point in their life. But they now sacrifice their children to idols of comfort and body 
and career. Every one of the most aggressive and militant proponents of neo-atheism are those who at one point were Christians and went to church, but now have fallen away. And the list goes on. The last state of that person is worse than the first. On the other hand, Christians who do go to church regularly pray often and hear the word and receive the Lord's Supper, they're not sinless, uh, but they pray with their families and so on, are less likely to engage in these things in rates significantly lower than the average. For example, just last year, every demographic, men, women, old, young, black, white, Hispanic, rich, poor, and so on, every demographic reported a significant decline in mental health and stability except for one, those who went to church regularly. They saw a 4% increase in mental health. Uh, The countries with the most Christians who go to church are also the same countries with the lowest suicide rates. And the list goes on. Now, all all of this is simply illustrating the truth of Jesus' words today, that Christians who believe for a time and then fall away become worse people than those who were never Christians at all to begin with. This is a serious matter. It is a very dangerous thing. You can can just look this up yourself. You can Google it if you want. Even more, some of you who were baptized in the church and grew up in it your whole life had a period, some of you have said that you've had a period where you fell away and you said that those years were the darkest days of your life. Now, this is why I have no intention of ever baptizing the children of parents who have no desire to bring them back to church. Those who view baptism as an excuse to throw a party or have another photo op or uh, just to make their parents happy or satisfy their wishes, but have no real intention of or commitment to bring those children back week after week, they're setting up their children for destruction, for a worse life than life would have been without baptism. Look, why would you want the Holy Spirit to dwell in your child if you just intend to kick the Holy Spirit out the very next week? Why would you invite him in the first place? Why would you want to expel the evil spirits from your child only to have it come back seven times worse? If you have no intention of coming to church or bringing your children next week, then why would you bring them this week? Actually, it would be better that you never had the Holy Spirit than to have him now and reject him. Sounds harsh and crazy, but this is 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. Word for word, listen. If after they, the Christians, if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returned to its own vomit and the pig after washing herself returns to the mud. That's Holy Scripture. That's 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. 
First Timothy 4 says, Now the Holy Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves what, to what? To deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Okay. Now, I acknowledge that the majority of those who do fall away from the faith are not those who plan to. They don't schedule it and say, this is the day I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. This is the day I'm going to abandon the faith and give up heaven. No, but the question is how? How does this happen? Why would someone have the Holy Spirit now and then get rid of him later? It doesn't happen suddenly overnight. It happens slowly and gradually. And this is, one, uh, th- this is the one and only attack, the most effective attack that the devil has to get you to do this, to get you to become worse than you were once before. And this is it. He convinces you, he convinces you that you don't need Jesus. That's it. It is simple and obvious, but it is the most successful attack. It, it, it's, it's that you don't need Jesus, you don't need his forgiveness, you don't need his word, you don't need his body and his blood, and you don't need his salvation. But you don't need it as much as you think you might, or as much as Jesus says you do. And it's that simple. Now, it seems very obvious, but how does he get people to think this? How does he convince you that you don't need Jesus to begin with uh, in the first place? Well, the, the, the thing he attacks, what he sets his sights on is your conscience. Slowly and consistently, he wears your conscience down until it is numb. <clears throat> this is what your conscience is. Your conscience is the thing that God gave you in your, in your body that he designed to make you feel pain and discomfort when you do something wrong. It's like spiritual nerve endings that he put on your heart or your soul. And whenever you do something sinful, your conscience is there to tell you to make it stop. That knot or that sinking feeling you get in your stomach when you feel that guilt That is your conscience. When you sin, you're supposed to feel the pain and the anguish of guilt and say, my goodness, this hurts. I don't like this. This is uncomfortable. I feel sick. Uh, that, That feeling, that is your conscience. Now, it is the law of God written in your flesh that he designed in you. You're supposed to feel bad when you do bad things. And when you do, that means your conscience is working like the Lord designed it, like he intended. However... If you continually and persistently sin against your conscience, then you wear it down and eventually you won't feel that feeling anymore. You won't feel guilt anymore. And when you press against that conscience for so long, eventually you're going to build up a tolerance. It's going to toughen your heart. It'll become callous and then numb and then you'll engage in sin and you won't feel guilty at all. You'll just continue to get worse and worse and become more empty and numb. So uh, just to give you one, I could give you hundreds, but I'll give you one example of this. Cohabitation that is living together before marriage is a massive problem in our society. It is a blatant disregard for the will of God and the sixth commandment. Now I've had many people come to me who wanted me to perform their wedding. And so when we meet, I just straight out casually ask them, so are you living together? And then they'll say, yeah. And then I'll ask, well, how do you feel about that? And then they'll say, what do you mean? And I'll say, do you feel good about living together? Or do you feel guilty? 
Or do you feel indifferent? What's going on? And most of the time they'll say, look, I don't see a problem with it. I don't feel bad now. And then I'll ask, ah, okay, okay. So how did you feel about it? Like what were the first or second or third or fourth weeks like at the very beginning? How did you feel when you had to tell your parents? What was that like? And then usually uh, the woman will speak up because they because men tend to be more prideful and want to uh, defend themselves. But uh, the woman speaks up and then she'll definitely, she'll say, it was definitely weird at first. I felt bad. I felt nervous to tell my parents and so on, uh, but not so much anymore. And then I say, okay, so you felt bad about this at first, but now you don't. Why do you think that is? What changed? And they'll say, I guess I got used to it. And I say, you're right. That's exactly it. It's not that your guilt went away. It's that you simply got used to feeling that guilt to the point where you don't know what normal is anymore. And now, I, and I know that because when I address the cohabitation with them, they tend to get angry and defensive and then usually leave the faith. Now, that is what the devil would like you to do with whatever sin you keep coming back to or whatever sin you don't feel bad for anymore. He would like you to get used to your sin and guilt and simply think that that is the norm. That is the feeling that it should be in the pit of your stomach all the time. And that is how the devil gradually and subtly and imperceptibly gets you to toughen your conscience, to bring you to the point of thinking you don't need Jesus. If he can convince you that you're not guilty, then he can convince you you don't need to repent. And if he convinces you you don't need to repent, then he has convinced you that you don't need Jesus. The devil can't take the Holy Spirit out of your heart. But what he does do is he gets you to do it, to evict him and to kick him out. Now, if you're listening to this right now and you're afraid of what you have done to yourself, in what bad shape your own conscience is in, if you're actually scared and of how numb you are to sin, how numb you are to sin and wickedness, if you see that your heart and soul are more filthy than you realize, if you realize how bad of a situation you are in, then this is a good thing. And that is because you now see how much you need Jesus. How much you see, uh, you see how much you need him to save you. You cannot outrun or outwork a bad conscience. No matter how hard you try, you cannot do enough good works to drive anything away. Only Jesus will do that. If, even if legions upon legions of evil spirits dwell in your heart right this very second, They will always overpower you, but they will never overpower Jesus. Your Lord is the stronger one who removes them all through his death on the cross. So repent and cling to him. And know that as long as you are living, you will have sin. As long as you're living, you will have a difficult time and a hardened conscience. And that means you will never outgrow your need for Jesus or his gospel. 
There will never come a time when you don't need him and you don't need to come to church, that you don't need to receive his absolution, that you don't need to hear the holy gospel, that Christ was crucified for you, for your forgiveness and salvation. Dear saints, no matter what condition you are in, even if your heart is hardened, no matter how messed up your conscience is right now, no matter how much wickedness is coursing through your veins, even if you're worse now than you've ever been in your life, Jesus comes here today in his very body and blood to banish it all away and to take up residence back in your heart. With his flesh in a few moments, he will come to dwell in your flesh again and claim you as his own. So meditate upon the Ten Commandments and the Word. By doing that, you sharpen and tenderize your conscience. You make your conscience feel again and work rightly, and that is the law of God on your conscience. However, you have to know that the law will give you a tender conscience, a sensitive conscience, but it can never give you a good and clean conscience. Only the Lord Jesus can do that. And he will wipe it all away. Today, he gives you a good conscience, a clean one, by taking away your sins and also by taking away your guilt. That in him, you do not have to feel guilty for your sins anymore because of what he has done. And he takes away the guilt from your conscience with the blood of his veins. And he covers your shame and regret with his perfect and holy righteousness. And today, Jesus forgives you for everything. Every single thing in your life. Every single confessed sin, unconfessed sin. Things that you don't even remember. The Lord himself forgives you for. And though you may remember it and it bothers you. You have one who is greater than your heart. The Lord Jesus who does not remember it. I'll close with the words from 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you belong to God and have overcome these spirits because he who is in you now is greater than he who is in the world. So don't be afraid. The one who is in you is greater than whatever spirit is now in the world who will seek to come get you. Cling to Jesus and he dwells with you. Amen. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.